Let's get into God's Word together. Uh, before I have you stand to read God's Word, would you pray with me? Let's really ask God to speak to us in His Word this morning. Bow with me if you would. Father, we're about to open Your Word and read the words on these pages. And my prayer to you is that they would be so much more than just words printed on a page, that we would hear your voice speaking through them to us. Lord, you know what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. And I know that your word is powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it cuts like a scalpel right down to the core of what's going on inside of us. I pray that it would do that work this morning, that you would perform the miracle of opening our eyes to see you and our ears to hear you and our hearts to receive your word and respond rightly. Lord, we need your help for this and we look to you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, if you're able to, please stand with me as we read. We're going to read from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. Romans 8, beginning at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We're so grateful that we have God's word to study this morning. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. This passage of scripture contains one of the most cherished promises in all the Bible. It's a huge, huge promise. Look at it again in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That is great. That is great, great news. That's the kind of thing you could build a mega church on. You get a loudspeaker and you go to the mall and you proclaim, God is going to work it all for good. Whatever you're worried about, God is going to make it good. And people will flood to hear that, won't they? It's wonderful, wonderful news. It's a great promise. But it's not for everybody. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. All things. It says God causes all things to work together for good. He's talking about big things, big 9-11 sized things. He's talking about small things like a paper cut. Your commute to work. He's promised that he'll work all those things for good. He's talking about good things. The good things in your family. The good things in your life. He's talking about bad things. He's talking about sinful things. He says all things. That's a big umbrella. It covers a lot. It even means he'll work even sinful things for good. As well as as miraculous things. People things, all all your interactions with people, this promise covers that. He'll use those interactions. He'll work them, cause them to work together for good. Natural things, just the weather outside, this promise covers all things. Whatever's in your mind right now, and you're wondering, is that covered? Yes, 
It is. But, it's not for everyone. And God's definition of good might be a little different than ours. So we're going to look into this a little bit. I want you to read 28 again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For everybody? He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Now we need to figure that out. Wouldn't God want to be good to everyone? Doesn't the Bible say He causes His his sunlight to shine on both the, the righteous and the wicked or something to that effect? Why is this promise restricted? Why is it conditional? Who are these people who should not rest in this promise? I think to understand that, we got to answer the second question. It's not for everybody, and God's definition of good might be a little different than ours. Let's tackle that second part, and I really believe it's going to help us understand the first part. Okay? So just like last week, we had to do a mind scrub. We had to wash away our preconceived notions about the word love. And look into the text of Scripture and see what God meant. We need to do the same thing for good. Because I assume when we read that promise, you all felt pretty confident that you knew what was good. And it sounded good. What comes to your mind? What is good to you? Just personally. Maybe physical health. It's good, right? Maybe uh, having your needs met, your provision, that's good. What about your family, having a family that's going well, kids that are listening to you, get a date night every, every couple years maybe? That's good, right? Or what about occupational in your work? It's stable, and this day and age it's good just to, to have your job and not worry that, that it's going to be over tomorrow. That's good, right? What do you think God means by good here? Because I'm going to argue that it's not any of that stuff. I'm just going to throw it out there, what I believe God means by good here, and then I'll try to prove it to you. When God says good, when Paul used that word good, he was using it to refer to the idea of conformity to Jesus. When he says good, when he says God causes all things to work together for good, I believe he means he causes all things to work together to conform you to the image of Jesus. So I'm saying that he he doesn't necessarily promise here that things are going to feel good, but he promises that things are going to work together to mold you into something that looks like Jesus. Like a sculpture gets a big rock and he just starts banging away with a chisel. And each smack with that chisel is carving away stuff that doesn't look like Jesus and revealing what does look like Jesus. So that every event in your day, in your week, in your month, every interaction with people, every uh, change in the weather, everything he's using, like a sculptor uses his tools to mold you to look like Jesus. Now, that's a little different than probably what 
immediately pops in our minds when we hear the word good. So why do I think that? How, what makes me so confident that that's what he means? Well, in this passage itself, I think Paul explains that. Paul has a tendency to be really confusing. If you read Romans, there's some sentences in there that are like pages long, it seems like. And they wrap around and, and his points get like tangled in this knot. And you try to pull at it to make it make sense. And it just gets tighter and more difficult. His, his words can be hard. I think Peter even said in another book, he sort of admitted, I know some of Paul's words are kind of hard to understand. And I think Paul knows it too. He was actually a good communicator. I mean, we're separated by, by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of culture and linguistics. So it's hard for us, especially, to understand what he meant. But I think he knew that these were difficult concepts. So often, he would throw out some really complicated truth. And then he immediately goes into expanding on it and explaining it. And I really think that's what he's doing here. He gives us the promise. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For what purpose? What's it all pointing to? To become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Seems like the flow of his thought. He's saying the point of this is God is conforming you to the image of his son. He makes all things work together for good because he predestined you. He knew you before you were born to conform you to the image of his son. I think for that reason, I think that's what he means. Another reason is just the context of Romans. If you sit down and just try to read Romans through, he talks about about big theological things. He talks about Jews and Gentiles and how we're both called out to be Christians. He talks about sin and how we, we die to sin and we, we live with Christ and all these big Jesus-sized issues. That's what he talks about before we get to this promise and after we get to this promise. It would be very weird for him to suddenly pull the reins back and say, oh, and he's going to make sure your life is good. It would be very weird for him to just switch tracks all of a sudden and start talking about material blessing and physical blessing. So I think just the context of Romans itself, he must be talking about something greater than just our comfort and our good in that sense. That's the other reason I really think he's saying that this good promised us is that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I have more reasons if, if, as though you wanted to hear them. Again, I have the face mic, so I'm giving them to you. If you read on, look at that same chapter, verses 35 through 39. Or you can listen to me read it. He says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? I'll just, leave it. I'll just read that one verse. He's not saying you're not going to have tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. He's saying you're probably going to have all that, but it's not going to separate you from Christ. See, the whole flow of Scripture is trying to pull us away from trying to, to cling to these things. To try to escape tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. He's saying that stuff's going to come, but it cannot pull you away from Christ. 
And in chapter 9, we see that Paul himself, he, he has great sorrow and unceasing grief at the time when he's writing this. So he doesn't even have it good at the moment. He can't mean that God is promising us that kind of good. Material good, physical good, familial good, occupational good. He can't be talking about that. All the scripture testifies to it. Jesus himself, which we'll talk about later, exemplifies it. In this world, God doesn't promise us that kind of good. And our own experience testifies to it. Just think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world, what was his big act, his big thing that he did to be good to us, to love us? For God so loved the world that he gave us a comfortable retirement? For God so loved the world that he gave us good family relationships? Now, God so loved the world, he gave us Jesus. It's all about Jesus, including this promise. Okay? You're probably wondering, just get on with it. Why are you harping on this? Why is this so important? I think it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. Because a lot of people, a lot of people will turn to this verse to answer the big why questions in life. And in one sense, it, it can answer those questions, but in the sense that people use it, often it doesn't answer those questions. In those moments in life, and we've all had them, and some of you I know have had them recently, we wonder why. And we want to see in Scripture that somehow that whatever it is that happened wasn't actually bad, maybe it was actually good. And we turn to this and it almost seems like it's saying that. But that's not what it's saying. It's not saying that the bad events in our lives are good events in disguise. Sometimes bad things are just bad things. We live in a screwed up world. Sin messed up everything. And now our bodies decay. And now we die. And now we sin. And we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. And this world is always going to be difficult. are not good events in disguise. Sometimes they're just bad events. The promise isn't that, no, no, they're actually good. It's that God can use all of that, even those bad events, for your good, in the sense that He can use all of that to further mold you to look like Jesus. Is everybody still with me so far? Romans is, is hard plowing. Everybody still good? Okay. Right, raise both your hands up. Just get the blood flowing. All right, good. Make sure you're still out there. It's important because, because life really is hard. And we don't want people to be confused when we take the gospel out there. We don't want them to hear from us, come to Jesus, because then life will be good. Because it's really not what's promised. And I wonder if that's not why we have so many people who who come to Christ in, in the church at large and then fall away, I think sometimes we've, we don't realize what we've signed up for. But when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, what did he say to do? Grab your recliner and come with me? He said, grab your cross and follow me. Cross was a symbol of pain and agony and death. 
You guys are like, this is not the uplifting word from God I was hoping to hear this morning. Well, it's going to get better. I promise you. But doesn't that, doesn't that jive more with your life experience, though? Doesn't that just seem more true? See, there are men who have built mega churches talking about how good things can be for you now. It can be great now. Your finances can be great now. Your family can be great now. Your, your everything can be great here now. But Jesus never made those promises. Jesus never promised all that. He said, take up your cross. He said, when you come to follow me, basically what you're signing up for is death. You're, you're signing up to die to yourself and follow me to walk in my footsteps. And what were Jesus' footsteps? Were those footsteps of prosperity and financial security? He was poor. He was plain looking. He was homeless. He was rejected. He was hated. He was betrayed by people close to him. He was tortured. He was killed. That's the guy that we're following. So it's a mistake to think that it's going to work out a whole lot better for us. Jesus said to his disciples, if they hated me, how much more are they going to hate you? So with all that in mind, what is promised here? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then Paul goes into more detail about what he's talking about. He already said the things that God does for us to make this promise come true, he foreknew you, he foreknew you. He knew about you a long time ago. He knew you'd be sitting here listening to this before you were ever born. He predestined you who are Christians to receive this promise, to be conformed to the image of God. And then in verse 30, he goes on, he says, those who he predestined, he also called out. The Bible says he calls out to dead people. Christianity is not about making the uncomfortable comfortable. It's about making the dead live. It's not about making the uncomfortable comfortable. It's about making the dead live. It says he, he foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you. And those of you who he called, he also justified. You know, we were enemies when God came in with this. We were his enemies. We were rebellious against him. We didn't love him. And he came to us to make us, who were his enemies, his family. He's conforming us to the image of His Son. He's adopting us in, and this family resemblance, we're growing into it. Christianity is not about making the uncomfortable comfortable. It's about making enemies family. Those who He called, He justified. Those who He justified, He glorified. I still think He's referring back to making us look like Jesus. Hebrews says Jesus is the the exact radiance of God's glory. That's what he's making us into. And man, we, we are vile, disgusting sinners without this. Christianity is not about making the uncomfortable comfortable. It's about making the vile and, and damnable glorious like Jesus. It's so much greater, so much 
so much better than what we think of as just being good. The promise is God causes all things to work together to make this, verse 30, happen. To conform us to the image of His Son. Now why, back to the first question, why not for everybody? This frames it all a little bit differently. When we think that it means that God is going to make things feel good, it doesn't seem fair that that's not for everybody. But this frames it all a little bit differently, I think. The best way I can think to illustrate it is to talk about Meredith's cooking. She's not here, so I can do that. My wife, really, I'm not just trying to be the sweet husband, is an amazing cook. She really is. She's gifted. She, more than I'm gifted to preach by far, she's gifted to cook, I feel like. And it's amazing. And every night is different. We have an ongoing joke where I'll say, if it's really good, I'll say, put that on the list. And there's this fictional list of things that I'd like for her to cook again. And it's fictional because she doesn't cook the same thing twice. <laughs> she doesn't. But each time it's still good. It's better than the last time. So it's okay. And it's always nutritious. I eat. I was visiting with Richard after his heart attack, and we were talking about how his diet was going to have to change. And I was telling him, every time I leave the hospital, I am, I am dead set on eating healthy and exercising because I don't want to be here. <laughs> and then we got to talk, and somehow it came up about lunch. And I said, yeah, I had a foot-long hot dog and a Coke at Costco on my way over here. <laughs> if it was left to me, I would... I would kill myself with hot dogs and sweet. But Meredith cooks nutritional, just really delicious food. And I like it. It's good to me. Now, talk to Elias. <laughs> and see what he thinks. Somehow, it's not good to him. And he wants honey toast. It's toast with honey on it. It's his favorite thing in the world. I mean, I'm glad that his tastes are simple and I don't have to go and get caviar for him or anything. <laughs> so he'll turn up his nose at some shrimp pasta beauty to eat honey toast because it's not good to him. He has no taste for it. It doesn't mean anything to him. And he doesn't like it. So it's not good to him. Now God has promised he will work all things together to make people Conform to look like Jesus Christ. But that's only good to those who love God. And that's only good to those who are called according to His purposes. And not everybody falls in that category. Just like not everybody likes flavor and nutrition. Not everybody likes God. And not everybody cares about God's purposes. This promise is for two... Well, it's for one group of people who follow... Who fall in both of these categories. They love God. Because everything God is doing, the good, the bad, the ugly, is to draw His people to Him. By making them more and more like Christ. By justifying them through Christ. But some of us, let's just be honest, we don't want God. We want our stuff. We want our comfort now, here. We want our family good here. We want our finances to be good here. And so this whole thing that he's doing, it doesn't taste good to us. This promise is not for those who have no taste for God. So many people go to church 
wanting God to give them their idols. And God, the whole while, is offering himself, the real God. His promises for those who love God. That's how you can hear Christians and people in the Bible say crazy things. Like David said, let the bones you've broken rejoice. Whereas we would say, why'd you break these bones? There's joy in, in everything if we can connect it with the fact that it's drawing us to God. Let me read something else Paul said in this same letter in chapter 5. He says, and not only this, chapter 5, verse 3, and, all, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. How can anybody say, I rejoice in tribulation? You're going to be crazy. Or you've got to see that that tribulation is bringing you something much better. It's for those who are called according to His purposes. All these things that God is orchestrating are sweeping us into God's purposes for us. Which are all those things He listed out. Calling us, justifying us, glorifying us. Some of you, I imagine, are like me. And often you find yourself just drifting. You're going to work every day. It's the same every day. And you're coming home to the same routine every night that ends on the couch watching the same shows every night. And you get up to the alarm at the same time every morning and you're just sort of drifting along. Beneath the surface of all that, for Christians, we are swept into a glorious purpose that God has ordained for us. Beneath the surface of all this mundane drifting that we do, God is pushing us through His plan, His mission for us to become Christ-like. But we don't usually wake up thinking that in the morning. We wake up and we drift back out into the day and then we drift back in at night. See, I think a lot of people will sign up for Christianity thinking that when you do so, you're being led loose in this placid, peaceful lake where you're going to sort of bob around until Christ comes back. When in reality, becoming a Christian is being placed into a rushing river. And this river is pushing you relentlessly and purposefully toward God's purpose for you, which is Christ-likeness. God doesn't take His Christians and put them in a placid lake. He puts them in a rushing river and it is going to push you towards Christ-likeness. And there will be times when you can't get your head above the water to breathe and it's hard. The promise is, stay in there and hang on. He's working it all for your good and is taking you where He means for you to go. Which is Christ-likeness. There's a phenomenon in the church today and it's basically this. Men don't want to go. Our church has a pretty good mix. But at large, men don't want to go to church. And they do studies to find out why. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that it feels like you're going to grandma's house. You come in, it's all pastels everywhere, and everybody's so super sweet and nice. And it just feels like you're joining a, a grandma's house club or something. And men aren't 
are interested in all that. I think if we had more men who understood what this is that we've been caught up in, this perilous, dangerous, difficult, grueling, but glorious, wonderful purpose that God has called us up into, that requires all of us, that requires more of you than anything else in your life, that requires you to be the kind of man who can die to yourself and live for other people. I pray that our men get swept up into that. And that the men in our community do. Because I've heard it said, if, if you get the men, you get the community. Because the men are the ones leaving the households, leaving the kids fatherless. That's a, that's a tangent that I should not even going down today. But he's calling. He's calling now. Are, are you going to respond? Are you in this river now and you're just grappling for a root or something to get out? Hang on, stay in. And this passage, this passage means a lot for me right now. Uh, I had a rough week. I just had a rough week uh, for a lot of different reasons, particularly the last half of the week. And I told the guys in the prayer meeting this morning, God orchestrated events to where he forced me to be in silence and solitude with this passage almost all day yesterday. The guy that was coming to meet me, we were going to do some work together. He got in a car accident. He's okay. But he got in a car accident, so he couldn't come. So I was, I was working solo. And my iPod battery died. So I had no choice but for silence and solitude all day. But in that time, I was meditating on this passage because, you know, I wanted to preach it accurately and well. And it's like... Finally, I mean, I know this passage. I've been studying it all week. It's like, finally, I realized, oh, you're talking to me. This situation that has churned my stomach, that has made me miserable, that has made me grumpy. And I apologize to anybody here to whom I was grumpy. Even this situation, you're working for good. Even this situation, you are going to use to make me look more like Jesus. Oh, now, that doesn't make this situation taste any better or feel any better. But I'm going to hang on. I'm going to stay in. I don't know. I don't know if that means anything to you. Sometimes, I mean, really, sometimes I feel like Dolan's Grove, we all come here and I preach to myself in front of a bunch of people. But I pray that this makes sense because... Some of you have had cause for some big why moments. And I'm not handing this to you as some easy answer. Oh, because God's going to make it good. I'm handing this to you saying, I don't know all the reasons why, but I know this. God has promised that he will use that along with every other event in your life to work out his good purpose for you, to make you Christ-like. So I just want to close by reading the way Paul finishes up his thought here. And don't even flip there. Just listen to it. And that's the last stuff I'm going to say. And we're going to sing again. We'll read the whole passage and then listen to what he says next. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. 
to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, tune back in for this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake... We are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, once again, I just I thank you for your word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will work it into our hearts. Help us to understand and respond rightly. Help us to respond to this promise with trust. Give us new taste buds that find you glorious, that love you. Sweep us into your purpose. Even if it will be painful. Lord, you know best what's good for us. Way better than we do. Help us to trust you for that. Help us to submit to your sculpting hands. Make us to look more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.